This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is VLX number 132. We are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. The stone the builders rejected. VLX stands for Video Lexu Divina, the Patristic Bible Study and Ignatian Prayer Series. God give you his peace and nomi patri sufiti et spiritu sancti. Amen. God, O Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomi patri sufiti et spiritu sancti. Amen. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds, because they held him to be a prophet. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So you may have heard my new audio bumper before the podcast. You know, I really enjoy the South African accent, and so I asked a traditional Catholic in that country, who I'm Facebook friends with, to do that bumper. His name is Calvin. I hope you like it because it will be the opening to every podcast. But it's an intro to new listeners, so please keep leading people to this podcast if you like it and give a rating on Apple or your podcast app if you would. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Rumble in case I get deplatted on HooTube. Now, today, because it's a parable, uh, unfortunately, there's not much in the imaginative way, but you can still bring today's study to your prayer, of course. Now, I do want to recap some of the last VLX. Remember, we are in the same chapter, that is Matthew 21, but in the last VLX in Matthew 21, 23, the chief priests and the regular priests of the people, they ask Jesus about his teaching and his miracles. They say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? from heaven or from man. Now, of course, the priests weren't interested in the truth. They're only looking to trip up Jesus. 
And similarly, I reminded you to pose a question to leftists or mockers who would pose a question who aren't truly interested in the truth of apostolic Catholicism. So when an enemy of tradition asks you, do you accept Vatican II, don't answer it. Just give a question to a question like Jesus did in the last section. When they say, do you accept Vatican II, just say back, did Vatican II change the faith? If they say yes, then say, then you have a new religion on your hands. If they say no, say, then you should have no problem with me teaching what the Catholic Church has always taught. Boom. Okay, so today, Jesus is talking to that same group of religious leaders in Matthew 21. Remember, this is in the temple or just outside the temple, and Jesus has four days to live before his passion, death, and then he resurrects himself, of course, on Easter Sunday. But this is Holy Week. And as I said earlier, Matthew 21 was the last VLX, and we're still in that same chapter. But today, Jesus turns up the heat because today's parable against the against the priests is primarily about the transfer of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, from Judaism to Christianity. Now notice I don't say the kingdom was transferred from Jews to Christians or Jews to Catholics. Since all of the baptized, since all of the apostles were baptized Jews, making them Catholics. So we have to set the stage for this so we don't go anti-Semitic on today's parable because it's, it really is more about creed than race. It's about creed more than race. Keep in mind as we study today that St. Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, St. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So notice there, there's a priority in the initial evangelization to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or Greek or non-Jew. But in Romans 11, as St. Paul starts to see how the Jews are rejecting the gospel and the Gentiles, a.k.a. Greeks or non-Jews, are accepting it, he says, rather through their trespass, that is the Jews' rejection of the gospel in the first century, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Isn't that interesting? New converts to the true Messiah, that is Jesus, why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One for their own salvation, but way down the list is so as to make Israel jealous. So imagine the world's one true religion in the century before Jesus was born. That's Judaism. And for 20 centuries, that is this tree planted by God, by this analogy that's in Romans 9 through 11. The one true religion is a tree planted by God. Well, at Jesus' death, that tree turns from Judaism to Catholicism. But that wasn't as unnatural as it sounds. St. Paul writes in Romans eleven seventeen about this tree, as he's warning the non-Jewish converts to Catholicism this way. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and he means the Jews who didn't get baptized, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So keep in mind here that wild olive shoot is the Gentile converts to Catholicism. And then that root, that is the original. That is the Jewish converts. That is the apostles. And because the root is one and the same, Judaism slash Catholicism, 
or rather Judaism, the one true religion, became at the tearing of the temple uh, veil, that root is the Jewish, the, the apostles who were baptized, the apostles who bring the Catholic faith to the whole world. So Jewish converts to Catholicism are the natural branches of the root, but the Gentile or Greek or non-Jewish converts, these are those grafted in almost artificially. That's why he calls them a wild olive shoot. And I show you this just so that you understand that when I say today's parable is about the kingdom going from Judaism to Catholicism, God gives the first chance to the Jews to become Christians. And that's important to understand since traditional Catholics are often accused of being anti-Semitical. So as you listen to today's parable in Matthew 21, know that yes, it is about, once again, the kingdom being transferred from the Jews of Israel to the Christians of all nations. But Romans 11 shows Jews were given the first chance at baptism and they are the root in the apostles. And in some sense, they're the converted natural branches onto the one true tree of Catholicism, whereas Gentiles are the grafted on wild branches. Since the death of Jesus, the world's one true religion became Catholicism. But again, remember 100% of the apostles were Jewish converts and half the evangelists were Jewish converts. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, towards the end of time, many, many Jews will become Catholic right before the Antichrist comes on the scene and right before Jesus returns in glory at the end of time. So, you know, if we know that, if we know St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that, we should probably be like really nice to Jews as we evangelize them instead of like hammering away and all this anti-Semitic stuff online as traditionalists because we believe St. Thomas Aquinas that they're going to come into the faith at the end of time, so we have to evangelize them through charity. Also, as you listen, keep in mind that Pope St. Pius X said modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, and most Catholics in the Western Hemisphere are currently modernists, and heretics aren't part of the Catholic Church. All the while, get this everybody, Jesus is appearing to countless Muslims to go get baptized. I think Al Jazeera reported over a million converts a year, in fact, and that's not even a Christian production, so I don't know why they would admit that in the Middle East if it weren't true. Okay, what does this have to do with today's parable? Well, it shows that the natural tenets, so to speak, of the world's one true religion in the first century Judaism, now Catholicism, can become lazy and then God fills his own true world religion with people of other nations. That doesn't mean that we sideline baptism. Of course, those people that Jesus is appearing to in Muslim countries have to be baptized. But this happened to the Pharisees when Paul left them in their stubbornness of heart to go evangelize the Greeks. And in some sense, in some sense, it's happening to leftist Catholics today who have rejected traditional Catholicism as God is appearing in dreams to Muslims all across the Middle East. And I believe people like Middle Easterners who do take religion so seriously, as dark as the religion they believe in currently is, will eventually want traditional Catholicism, even if they don't get, say, the whole download in their first dream of Jesus appearing them, telling them to go get baptized. Anyway, the moral of the story in the first century and the 21st century with all these Muslim converts from Jesus and dreams is the exact same lesson. It's this. If you take your faith for granted, you lose it. Complacency is one of the best ways to lose the one true faith, both now and in the first century. And that's exactly where we enter into today's parable of Jesus just four days before his death, explaining today to the Jewish leaders of that day that in rejecting the truth and all the prophets and even God's own son, God now transfers the kingdom. Starting again in Matthew 23, 33, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who 
planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay, so of course in this parable, the vineyard is Judaism, but notice it belongs to God himself, meaning Jesus, and it's only leased to the religious leaders of Judaism. And that's a good reminder to all clergy today that we are stewards, not inventors of Catholicism. But just like bad clergy today, the Pharisees thought they were the rulers over Judaism, not the tenants, simply entrusted with handing it on to the people. That's the very root of the word tradition, handing on what you received. As I always say, the one thing the liberals in the Vatican are currently correct about right now is that the problem in Catholicism today is truly clericalism. And the next verse. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Notice this is how the Jews all kill their own prophets in the Old Testament. That's pretty amazing considering how this happened, not just for 10 years or 20 years. This happened for hundreds of years in the Old Testament. The Jews kept killing their best prophets. The next verse, finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now this is an astonishing development in the parable. This is saying that God sends the Jews prophets who they will kill. Then he sends his son who they also kill. So imagine this really is like a modern day business since we can get a little bit callous to the parables of the New Testament. Imagine a business like, I don't know, an oil field in Texas where a guy owns, say, 100 square miles of field and all his workers out there are on meth. And he sends them field supervisors to check on them. And then the oil field workers on drugs kill the field supervisors, even though these employees are making a good living, just fine. And then the owner of the entire oil company sends his son to all these bad employees in the official company car to cool things down and bring order to the oil field so that he can bring them total authority and patience. But instead of finally getting afraid of the law or seeing that the owner still hasn't punished them, they kill the owner's son too. They kill the owner of the oil field's son. And this is really how insane it is that these religious leaders killed the son of God. Of course, it's much more insane than even the oil field analogy. St. John Chrysostom says, Through all the grades of wickedness, the mercy of God went on increasing. He's talking about the Old Testament. Through all the grades of wickedness, the mercy of God went on increasing. And through all the steps of God's mercy, the wickedness of the Jews kept increasing. Father Lapide says, tropologically, that means applying virtue to our lives, the vineyard that everyone must till is his own soul. To a pastor, it is his parish. To a bishop, his diocese. To a king, his kingdom. To a magistrate, the state that they may bring forth the fruit of good works and virtues. The hedges of the laws and statutes, the keepers of the angels, the towers, meditation, reason, forethought, the wine presses, tribulation, mortification, the cross. And since there's not a lot of bishops or magistrates listening to this podcast, notice for most of you lay people, Father Lapide just said, the vineyard that everyone must till is his soul. The next verse reads, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the fruits in their seasons. Now, of course, it's politically incorrect to say this, but this is why all the fathers say God sent, or at least allowed, the Romans to destroy all of Jerusalem in 70 AD 
as a punishment for killing the Son of God who was sent to save them. But notice he gave him 40 years. Father Lapide puts it in even more terse but scary terms. He says, quote, God will destroy them by Titus and Vespasian in this life and by the devils in hell, end quote. He's talking about the Jews who killed our Lord. God will destroy them by Titus and Vespasian, those are the Roman rulers who came into Jerusalem in 70 AD, in this life and by the devils in hell, presuming they don't repent, of course. So then you might ask, why then do we need apostles and bishops? Father Lapide continues, The fruit of the vineyard, that is, of the church of God, is made manifest in the conversion of the whole world to the faith and holiness of Christ, and especially in the constancy of so many thousands of martyrs and virgins. Morally, learn from hence that just as a vineyard produces good grapes, even if those who till it be evil, so too the church and her faithful members produce the good works of virtues, even though, or rather even if, her pastors and teachers be sometimes evil like the scribes. So let me pause real quick. That's really important. The Catholic Church still produces great converts. We see this all the time, even when there is trouble in leadership. Yet, Father Lapide continues, Will they bring forth more and larger fruits if the pastors are good, as is plain from the apostles? When the primitive believers imitated their apostolic virtues, they excelled in chastity, charity, patience, and all virtues. And then I would add on top of that, millions of converts. Then Jesus says to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So this is why I said earlier when we looked at Romans 11 that today's parable is about the kingdom being transferred from the Jews of Israel to the Christians of all nations. But remember again, Romans 11 shows that Jews were given the first chance at baptism. The Jews become apostles, were of course baptized in the initial roots of this whole tree. And in some sense, they are the converted natural branches onto the one true tree of Catholicism, whereas the Gentiles are the grafted wild branches. And that, again, is why St. Paul wrote to those Gentile converts in Rome. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and again, he means the Jews who didn't get baptized, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. This is why I'm against anti-Semitism. We have it right here in Romans 9 through 11. What we have to get ready for when Christ returns, which is Jews coming back in the faith. And probably being mean to them is not the way to evangelize. Um, and I realize all the problems in globalism and everything else like that, but just realize how much of the uh, Catholic hierarchy is behind globalism also. So we just don't have a lot to stand on. Um, on this whole front. Anyway, last verse here. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So what is this stone that is broken to pieces? Father Lapide says, the meaning is this, the scribes, priests, and Pharisees, as the builders of the synagogue, that is, of the Jewish church, cast Christ from it as a worthless stone. Indeed, they condemned and killed him as someone contrary to it. But this stone, rejected by the Jews, is made by God, the head of the corner, that is, it was placed at the head of the corner, and was made the chief and altogether fundamental stone of the church. And at the same time, the cornerstone, so as to join and connect the two walls of the Gentiles and the Jews on itself, as in a corner, is the same edifice 
and house of the church, so say St. Augustine and St. Basil. Again, we might wonder, where does Peter come in if he's also the stone? And Father Lapide, of course, answers that. He says, Christ, therefore, is the first rock of the church who communicated this name together with the thing itself to St. Peter, so that after Christ, he, that is Peter, should be the rock of the church and then to the other apostles. And a couple more severe, kind of scary things from Father Lapide, but obviously true since he gets it from the fathers who got it from the apostles who got it from Christ. What is meant by verse 44 that in the Dewey Rhymes reads, And whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it shall grind him to powder. Father Lapide says that that means whoever shall resist Christ and persecute him shall do it in vain and shall bring harm to himself both in mind and in body. I think that's important to remember for all of our sins. Every time we sin, it is true we re-crucify Christ, but we also have to remember every time that we act against how Christ has made us, both as our Creator and our Redeemer, we actually are bringing, quote, harm to ourselves, both in mind and in body, end quote. So let's just remember that anytime we're tempted to presume on the sacrament of confession, we still do damage to our faculties. And then this line, but on whomsoever it shall fall, what does that mean? Father Lapide says, Upon whomsoever Christ shall press with the whole weight of his heavy vengeance, for example, upon the damned in the day of judgment, as you, O ye scribes, will be damned unless you repent, to such a one there shall remain no hope of reparation or restitution, as if a great stone should fall upon a clay vessel and dash it into tiniest fragments, so that, no, so that in no way could it be restored or repaired. Christ, therefore, threatens the scribes here with eternal and irreparable destruction, even the flames of hell, so says St. Augustine. Now keep in mind, some of these Jews did convert, like Gamaliel and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and I think Nicodemus converted. So obviously this is talking about final impenitence among the Jewish leaders. Some converted. I don't think most of them did. They certainly were given the chance insofar as Christ was very, very clearly the Messiah, fulfilling hundreds of Old Testament prophecies and working miracles and living a life beyond all reproach, and of course, teaching like no rabbi had ever taught before. So we see that that cornerstone links the Jews and the Gentiles who come into this one edifice of Catholicism, but there's also something of world history we have to look at. And I talked in a recent RCT, that stands for Roman Catechism of Trent, I recently talked about Daniel chapter 2. If you heard that one, you would remember that the king of Babylon in 600 BC sees a giant steel statue in a dream, and in this dream, a stone hits the foot and collapses this whole statue. Well, Daniel interprets this dream in Daniel chapter 2, saying, quote, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. You, he says to the king of Babylon, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, end quote. Now, Daniel said this 600 years before the birth of Jesus. He even said that before the Roman Empire started. Scripture scholars explain that this steel statue in this dream, that was a prophecy from top to bottom, the different empires that would rule over the Mediterranean world from 600 BC onwards. And so Babylon, or modern-day Iraq, that would be ruling over the Mediterranean world in the 6th century. That's who saw this dream. That's the head of gold. And the second kingdom is King Cyrus in Persia, modern-day Iran, which really happened in history, ruling over that Mediterranean region or east of the Mediterranean. Then ruling over that whole world was Alexander. Uh, and this is the Greek Empire, which is the kingdom of bronze, exactly as Daniel prophesied it. 
and then the Kingdom of Iron, and possibly clay, that is the Roman Empire. And then what happens? Well, under the Roman Empire, a small stone, which is Christ, collapses the whole Roman Empire as Rome becomes the center of his organization, his own church. So Jesus is this cornerstone. He's the cornerstone both of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 117 or 18, as well as Daniel chapter 2 for the entire, all of earth. Jesus is the cornerstone of this new building of the only true religion of the world. Jesus is this stone rejected by the Pharisees that has become the foundation stone or the cornerstone of the new and everlasting empire, which is Catholicism. But he's also that stone that crushed the Roman Empire, not through violence, but through his own crucifixion and the Roman martyrs to have that Christianity building set up in Rome through their own blood. That's why we hear from Tertullian that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's why that building isn't just Christianity in general. It's literally Roman Catholicism if you link Daniel 2 to the fact Peter and Paul were sent to Rome and the fact this stone uh, collapsed the Roman Empire and made a kingdom which shall last forever. The Catholic Church equals the kingdom of God. So the stone of this foundation of Jerusalem and Rome is right out of Daniel 2 and Matthew 21 today. It's not just me saying it as a Roman Catholic priest. We have Rome peppered through all of the Old and New Testament in this prophecy. So think about this. Daniel predicted God's own tiny stone hewn from no human hands, that means Mary, from this mountain would overturn the Roman Empire in the Middle East. Not only was, was this predicted before Jesus was born, but even before the Romans had begun to conquer. And this would be from some backwater outpost religion in the Roman Empire, as, keep in mind, the Romans really despised being sent to Palestine. The stone rejected by the Jewish builders and crucified by the Romans would become the cornerstone of fulfilled Judaism, which is Christianity, which is Catholicism. So, of course, with all respect to the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, even the Eastern Church fathers like St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. John Chrysostom give primacy of place to the Church in Rome. And that's why it's truly Roman Catholicism we're talking about as this vineyard and tree today, founded by Jesus himself, the stone the builders rejected. Thank you to all my benefactors, spiritual and material. I remember you at my Masses. Please say an Our Father for me. Et benedictio Deum Impotentis. Patris et Firi et Spiritus Santi descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.